Imagine an infamous grimoire that brings death to all who try to unlock its secrets. Can its riddle be solved by a modern-day occultist who uses cutting-edge technology to overcome human imperfection and to detect the things that no eye can see? Thank you for stopping by this science fiction podcast from Third Flatiron Publishing in Boulder, Colorado and Air, Scotland. Today we're presenting the short story Toxic by Eleftherios Keramidas. Eleftherios is from Greece, which so far supports few full-time genre writers. But he has a great day job as a software engineer, which lets him write speculative fiction and gives him the scientific background to tell this story of a very tech-savvy wizard. This anxiety-inducing story first appeared in the anthology Brain Games, Stories to Astonish. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our podcast. And now, let's join the foreboding world of Toxic, read by Jordan Ashley Moore. Toxic by Lefterius Keramidas. I knew of the deaths, the final pages of the victim's notebooks missing, torn away. Their brains wrecked without any external trauma. No necromantic trick would recall their specters for questioning. Trying to peer back in time to witness the events preceding their demise proved not only just as fruitless, but also dangerous. The spirit realm around the corpses had grown hostile, choke full with thorn bushes made of pure horror and hatred. But a modicum of danger on the path to immortality could be expected and I kept a few more tricks up my sleeve than all of those wizards and witches who had failed with the deleterious grimoire. I felt my way down to the basement store's entrance. Very little moonlight shone on the narrow steps, even less on the door. Barely enough to make out the large metal ring hanging from a main head's jaws. The shadow of the lintel obscured the rest of the knocker's features, yet I guessed it wasn't a lion. A manticore, the mythical man-eater, seemed a much more fitting sign for the emporium of forbidden knowledge. Soon after the third rap, I heard five locks turn successively, and then as many latches slide. Hinges squeaked, the door opened a crack, pale light seeped out. Perched between a wrinkled, dark-skinned forehead and a hooked nose, a dark eye peered at me through the gap. It was the proprietor himself, the old Armenian, the man who had recently acquired the unique tome I sought. He scrutinized me for a while, then unfastened the security chains and stepped aside. After I crossed the threshold, he took his time to secure the door again. I snapped up the chance to inspect the room. Most surfaces had sigils of protection inscribed on them. Bands made of the seven planetary metals reinforced the doorframe. The air was sweet with the smell of incense, and also bone dry as was necessary to preserve all those old volumes. I counted seventeen stacks of books, as tall as the ceiling allowed, spaced all too regularly on the circumference of a round rug. I surmised there was a magic circle hidden underneath. A velvet curtain stretched from wall to wall in the back. Music came from somewhere beyond it, a dirge played on a psaltery. The elderly man dragged his bad leg to the carpet's very center. 
Are you sure you want it? he asked, his accent vaguely French. It has done away with occultists far better known than you. Doubtless, they had all been as well shielded against curses and spells as I could ever be. That's exactly why I suspected that a more mundane factor might also be involved. A toxin, or virus, or maybe radiation. So, I left no avenue open for such a lethal agent to reach me. I was wearing a cap drawn as low as my ears. Gloves, too. A thick scarf covered my neck, my mouth, and my nose. Ensorcelled obsidian lens spectacles hid my eyes. For added protection against poison and disease, I had embroidered the four seals and the three symbols on every item of clothing touching my body. So I offered no answer to the old Armenian's attempt to dissuade me from obtaining the nameless book. I just snorted in derision. He shrugged. I understood why he didn't care either way. Grimoires designed to store eldritch power as well as knowledge develop an aura that binds them with their owners in very specific ways. I know of one tome that cannot be given away or sold, only stolen. I know of another which can only be won through gambling. More than a few have a caretaker, a person they have made immortal and can always return to, no matter what. Not that the Armenian was such a designated guardian. The nameless book would never abide one. The birth of its legend has no identifiable details and hasn't been tracked back to a specific time or source. The whole mystery, lack of known title and provenance, author and synopsis, is the source of its might. No one has ever tried to perform a ritual of binding to name this grimoire and subjugate it. There hasn't even been anyone brave enough to give it a sobriquet for use in casual conversation. Manuscripts of power may be barely self-conscious, yet they possess potent will. Threatening the nameless book's autonomy, even through a moniker, would cause it to strike back. To strive for the complete annihilation of the offender, so as to subsume that person's story into its own, and thus remain anonymous. However, the Armenian's defenses had proven effective against temporary ownership of the book. So he surrendered it only when I paid a price he considered fair. It was wrapped in violet silk, full of apotropaic symbols stitched in silver thread. The large metal clasps poking at my ribs as I carried it under my arm were the least of my worries. After I caressed it over the fabric, the cover was hard and creased like bark. There was no way to stop repeating this movement over and over. I longed to riffle through the pages. Everyone who has heard of the book knows of its beautiful symmetry. It can be read left to right, or vice versa, top to bottom, or the opposite. I became agitated, almost aroused. Only when I entered my home, my sanctum, did the feeling subside. The sense of total safety calmed me down. My walls, ceiling, and floor are all marked with protective polygons. I have even bound a small spirit to each piece of furniture to keep other incorporeal entities out. My lab, the hub of my home and my work, while shielded in the same way, is also a sterile and mechanically automated environment. Knowledge is freely available nowadays, especially through the internet, the ubiquitous book. Even true occult lore can be discovered online, and this has helped the art forge ahead. 
Yet only a few practitioners have come to realize how truly useful the leaps and bounds of this era's science can be. The slightest inexactness in a simple pentacle, an imperceptible discontinuity in its lines, results in death, insanity, or possession by otherworldly beings. I do not have to worry about such perils, though, since my magical diagrams are laser-cut. Any mistake while following an alchemical recipe may bring disaster. It's impossible for me to make such a mistake. I weigh materials with an analytical balance that is precise down to micrograms, then mix them with high-end medical equipment and apply my elixirs with industrial sprinklers, uniform pressure per square inch guaranteed. There are far UVC lamps all over my place, inactivating airborne bacteria, but in no way did I consider this treatment sufficient when I returned with the book. I put the tome in the lab's airlock, then ran to the decontamination chamber, dropped my clothes in the incinerator, and proceeded to get rid of all biological, chemical, and radioactive agents I might have picked up, either in the basement bookstore or during my brief contact with the grimoire. By the time I was purified, the rolling belt had moved the book to the leaden box. Its walls are lined with a plastic compound of my own design, incorporating twelve magical axioms in the macromolecules that comprise it. Inside the box, the book was photographed by normal and bicurlian cameras, subjected to several kinds of spectroscopy and checked for magnetic properties. The resulting files were autosaved to my computer's hard drive. I skimmed through them and set up a 3D model from X-ray scans of the mechanisms inside the grimoire's clasps. Others may have toiled for days or months to unlock them. I was done in less than half an hour. I programmed the robotic arms and then performed some rituals while they were pressing here and there on the book's cover. Finally, I took my vestments off, inscribed runes with pure henna on my chakras, and wrote passages from the Forbidden Sutra on my face. Fully prepared, I sat before my desk and spent a moment trying to guess how the book delivered its venom. Was it the ink, the edge of the pages, rusty bands on its back? All too many reasons not to touch the thing. I own the equipment to photograph text in rolled scrolls and closed tomes, page by page, layer by layer, telling each apart through the use of T-waves. It's the same technology applied on papyri charred by Vesuvius. So, I could even have skipped unlocking the clasps. But reading the book was not my sole ambition. I wanted to crack its mystery and find out exactly how it murdered wizards and witches. If that proved impossible, I would settle for making it harmless. In my studies... I have concluded that fame equals immortality. Legend is literally magic. It utilizes neither ceremony nor chant. It eschews sigil and potion, yet is as effective as any other form of the art. Hercules and Gilgamesh, Marilyn Monroe and Elvis, Napoleon, all of them endure as more than stories. Occasionally, they even awaken. When the Armenian warned me that the book had done away with occultists far better known than me, he mistook my lack of acclaim for lack of skill. The truth is, I had never before sought to advertise my achievements. 
But were it to become known in certain circles that I had read the deadliest manuscript of power, and furthermore broke it to my will, the legend of the book would be incorporated in my own legend, and become my ticket to life everlasting, my philosopher's stone. Inside the leaden box, the robotic arms were already turning the pages. Each vellum surface was being vacuumed, sprayed with disinfectants, bombarded with radiation detrimental to all types of microorganism, and finally scanned. My optical character recognition software was set to process the files as soon as it received them, equipped with all alphabets I could find in libraries across the world, plus a few familiar only to the initiated. Looking directly at the book's pages was out of the question, as a hex might have been scrawled in the margins or lurking in the illustrations. Even opening the grimoire using the robotic arms could have caused a demon or other hostile entity to appear. But that had been an eventuality I was well prepared for. My lab is fortified with several layers of containment circles. From the very first moment the book's cover was lifted, speakers around me were broadcasting exorcisms, entrapments, and abjurations in my own voice. By recording and mixing, you can redo any part, expel any error, achieve perfect rhythm and utterance of the words. Alas, sound alone carries little impact, unaccompanied by concentration. But the playback couldn't hurt, so I had turned it on. The scanning software issued a warning about empty files. I wasn't worried initially. Blank pages at the beginning are part of the bookbinding process. However, 34 pages in a row without any text at all seemed unlikely. Then another thing, even more improbable, caught my eye. The size of every file from the 35th scan page on was identical. I opened one, pretty certain I had botched the digitization. The file's header informed me that no character on the page had been identified. I had to look at an image. It wasn't a photograph, just an approximation of ink outlines through a graphics editor, inserting yet another buffer between me and the nameless book. I scrolled down. No spacing, no paragraphs, no punctuation. Just solid blocks of symbols, neither curvilinear like Arabic, nor angular like ancient Greek. There was a balance to them, adding depth, if I may call it that. It felt like seeing beyond the liquid crystals of the screen. I opened a word processor and turned on the voice-to-text feature so that I could keep some notes without switching between applications. Back to the image, I stared at each character in turn. A flash of pain through my sinus made me squint. Then, I realized one ideogram had become highlighted in a way I can't describe precisely. It was as if it protruded from the page, reached my forehead and penetrated my skull, pushing part of my brain to a new configuration, one that allowed me to understand it. Depending on context, it meant well, or lair, or tomb. I scrolled up and down. Every time I located the same character, it stood apart and extended even deeper inside me. More ideograms came alive. I was learning them by revelation. I became fixated. I started making sense of whole sentences. The text was being filled out like a puzzle, one piece here, there another. 
It was a second-person narrative. The book was addressing me. Only a handful of characters still eluded my grasp. Threads in a torn curtain I would soon part to confront some primal truth. A single drop of blood trickled slowly from my nose. I found myself unable to lift a hand to wipe it away. My mind was being rearranged like a Rubik's Cube to fit the book's contents. All other functions of my nervous system were being aborted as unnecessary. I was wheezing. My heart rate was dropping. I decoded the text's secret. Me at its center. Protagonist, narrator, and reader all at once. There was enough original information to intrigue, to lure in, but the rest had been drawn from my own psyche and memories, dressing the whole thing up. The nameless book is different for each owner. Personalized. Through sheer effort, I managed to tear my gaze away for a moment and peeked at the size of the open file. Zero. So, the ideograms were neither lighting up nor popping out of the text as I was learning them. They were actually vanishing, sublimated, migrating within me. It was all an illusion. I just thought I could still see them, because they were taking over whole regions of my mind. This is the way the nameless book kills. Each of its pages is a vessel filled with a lethal dose of some toxic language. I wonder, is this mortiferous grimoire an insidious ploy to destroy occultists who get too powerful or too ambitious? Or is it part of a scheme even subtler, grand and terrible, with the pages draining something indiscernible from the victims as they turn blank, until, after many centuries, a pre-designated amount of this mysterious quality accumulates. If either of these theories hold any truth, then who has orchestrated the whole thing? Maybe everything is much simpler. Maybe the nameless book is alive, hunting and feeding. Or it's just text, but meant for intellects vastly alien or superior to ours, the deaths of human readers being an unintended side effect. Do the ideograms bear any meaning, or are they simple germs of the mind, serving no greater purpose in the universe than the cholera bacterium or the tuberculosis bacillus? So many possibilities, so few clues. Whatever the book's true nature, will my scans vanish after I die? Or have I created a digital copy able to spread to every computer in the world? I underestimated all those who tried to read this grimoire before me. They all had the willpower to destroy their notes as a precaution against further contagion. However, I can't even summon the strength to press a few keys and wipe the memory of every of my lab's devices. I am barely keeping myself from falling off the chair. And I read on in the footsteps of Oedipus, the archetype of just not letting a mystery go. Every other muscle in my body has gone numb, except those of my tongue. I guess the etchings on the ring that pierces it are just right for this situation. Anyway, I can still speak, and the word processor is turning whatever I say to text, the very text you are now reading. Those whose lot is to keep the art hidden from prosaic eyes shall eliminate all definite proof of my existence. I do not name their group here, lest they consider my narrative a threat and suppress it. 
No, this must not be done. I want this text to circulate freely. A vocal command, and it will be saved and uploaded to the Internet. Without any evidence to back it up, most people will label it either a hoax or a work of fiction. But there are also the gullible and the seekers. They shall embrace it and repost it wherever they can. And my last two words shall be my name, my signature. Yes, I choose to become associated with the infectious grimoire, to open up a channel between us. I'm dying. I have nothing left to fear. The more people talk about this story, the tighter my bond to the book will get. I've told you enough to dispel, dispel, some of its mystery without exposing you to danger. Through this text, I am stealing some of the grimoire's thunder. Even the initiated shall mention me once in a while to specify the tome. Thus, I have succeeded in labeling it. It's not entirely without name anymore. I will not attain immortality this way, however. I'm being annihilated. No fragment of my consciousness will be left behind to feed upon my legend. I didn't manage to appropriate the book's power. Yet, through technology, I pare it down. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.